Yeah, and people are allergic to processes most of the time. And it's like, some of them are, you know, not necessarily for them. And there are whole things together kind of process that needs to be there. It might not be fun, but most processes are made for the people that adhere to them in order to make things better for that exact same person. And yet that exact same person is the person that's gut reaction to hearing about a new process is like, oh gosh, not today, not another thing. It's like, this is for you to help you. This is supposed to give you the framework to know I'm going to be doing things the right way that have most likely led to success in the past. And also now I can know if I adhere to these, I can be my own human. I can get it done my own way. Yeah, at the end of the day, it is not what you know. It is absolutely what you do. How well you do it. Can you do it repeatedly? And can you do it in a habitual way where you can focus on something else and get better in a new way, you know? I like to remind everyone that I work with and myself in the work that I do that there is no neutral in business. Right, and I think this gets back to the classic problem of companies forever struggling to work on their business because they're stuck working in their business. Welcome to the Improvement Nerds podcast, where it's our goal to bring together a bunch of improvement nerds in order to start and improve evolution by providing people with a new tool set, a new skill set, and a new mindset. We're grateful that you're spending time with us today. If you enjoy what you hear, please follow our podcast and subscribe because there's sure to be good content that occurs in these conversations as we nerd out my love for creating processes is to enable company success. And the risk in creating processes is that you also do your very best effort and you cut the feet out from under people by pointing our direction, our intention, you know, our measurements at things that might not ultimately lead us to success. So I think the more people view a process with a customer appropriately in mind for whatever the context is, the better and more well-rounded they would be. You know, some of the examples we painted today is how processes can be the best enablers and the best informers and make us the most lean, efficient companies and like feedback loops of ourselves and our customers. But it's it's all in the doing. And so whenever someone's making a process, it is a system and you will have elements of the system, whether you're too hierarchically high and you see everything and you can't get in the details or you're in the opposite way or you're in one segment, you have to be sure that you get opinions of the areas you don't know, because if you build it, you know, so many of what you experience as a consumer is a company's clunky systems that you can see from the outside is like, they made that decision in a vacuum and that's coming across way worse than I know they intended. I have funny examples in my brain, but the point is the same as You don't know everything, no one does, no matter how big or small your company. And so build a system and think about the what ifs and think about all the alternates because your first idea might be the best, but if you don't have alternates, you'll never know. And then get other people who know different parts of it, even if they end up saying, this is fine, you don't need me. And that way you'll make sure you maintain the system while you work on even your area of it. Hey, Improvement Nerds. This is Tom. I'm back with another episode of the Improvement Nerds podcast today. I have an awesome guest, someone I know that you guys are going to fall in love with. Um, My guest today is Jeanette Renshaw. 
She's the founder of a company called Small Scale Consulting, which helps organizations. Most of the organizations that she works with are startups that are starting to experience growth and trying to scale up in order to meet that demand. So the way that she comes alongside those organizations and supports them is pretty cool. Uh, at the phase in which she meets these organizations, most times they're kind of thinking uh, immediate needs, and they're oftentimes thinking about what we need to be doing next. And as she comes in and works with them, she tries to challenge them to be thinking more long-term and not what's the one thing you want to work on or the one process you need to be thinking about, but how do all these processes work together? So as I got to know her, I thought it would be a great idea to bring her onto the episode and nerd out with her today and talk a little bit about what she does. So, ladies and gentlemen, I'm excited for you all to meet Jeanette Renshaw. Welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm excited to have you. So, a lot of the guests that I've had on this episode, there's a commonality in how I've got to know them. And you're one of those people that I got to meet through Jason. So, I'm, I'm thankful to him. I give him a couple of shout outs here and there um, for introducing me to all these great people. So, you know, uh, I'm glad he connected us and I, I'm glad to have you on the show. Yeah, Jason's great. And he's definitely a great connector on top of all that he already does. I in listening to other episodes. I was like, Tom knows so many people. I'm going to be a stranger, but I'll try to bring the heat all the same. Yeah. You know, the, the secret to getting to know individuals as an introvert is to pretend you already know them and just like have a conversation and talk to them like you're already best friends in in my professional career my personal life like that has worked wonders for me because I'm pretty shy and it's really hard for me to meet people so like if you listen to other episodes as I get started like the first five minutes are super awkward because I am super awkward when it comes to meeting new people but I've I've always um found that if I can, you know, just talk to them as if we're already friends, even though we may be meeting for the first time, I find that rapport comes so much easier. So just a little tip to all the uh, introverts of the world as they get to meet individuals like you can do it. It's hard, but it doesn't have to be hard. You can have fun with it and make it playful. As an extrovert, I'm like, aren't we already on the cusp of best friendship? <laughs> Yes, of course we are. <laughs> now we're really ready. Yeah. So tell us a little bit uh, about yourself. I shared what you're doing now, but I want to know the whole story um, about about your, your professional experiences, but also your personal experiences that have brought you to where you are now, where you're helping organizations as an advisor. Yeah. So maybe a good place to start is just where I am now for context. So Smart Scale Consulting is my practice I launched about a year ago, and the intention is around scalable businesses and scalability, as your audience certainly knows, starts with standardization of current results and then predictable, repeatable, and profitable results so that they can scale. And so in a nutshell, I help companies do that and specifically on their revenue side of the house, which often gets lumped into sales, but can be and is always going to be much broader than one discipline of business. Um, and so in that practice, which I'm sure we'll talk about a lot today, there's process and improvement constantly. It is the core of what I do. 
in my background and my personal life and how I got to here, I think process is my MO and like kind of improvement. And I know that it seems to be a theme across your guests, which is cool. And it makes me feel less alone because most of the time I feel sort of robotic in constantly fine tuning every aspect of my life, but the professional payoffs are wonderful and I'm very thankful. <laughs> I, I love that. A lot of individuals, when they come into the improvement sciences, the, it's as if like they find the golden goose egg, like they've thought this way their whole lives. Maybe they felt a little alienated or different because they viewed things uh, with curiosity and, and always studying and analyzing and trying to improve. And in some cultures, like that's taboo, like, no, just just follow the processes you were given. Don't shake the boat. Like sometimes improvement-minded individuals really don't fit in and they can be pretty isolating. And then they they find their family, they find their community and they stumble into Lean Six Sigma and the body and knowledge and all the improvement sciences. And they they oftentimes feel like they found their home and the light bulb goes off. So for you you know, you're saying like, this is just how I've, I live. Um, but when did it, when did it come together for you? Like, what was that light bulb flipping moment where you're like, oh my gosh, like there's tools around this and there's a language around this and there's a body of knowledge and I could become certified and I can create a business around this because you know what, although I think this way, not very many people do. And that makes me valuable. Not uh, different or weird. I think a lot of people who think this way are like, oh my gosh, like everyone thinks this way, but we take that for granted. Reality is most people don't have that process mindset. Yeah. It, it feels just like what, a, what other way is there to me and use of the world? And then everyone else in the room is often like, you have another question. You want to go another layer deep. You want to explore another way of doing this before we go with the plan. We've already thought about three different ways. You know, it's like, Yes, I want to make sure, you know, yes. Um, I think it started to hit for me, like there's a couple of turning points in life because it is who I am. It doesn't manifest one day out of nowhere. It's just always been there. I realized at some point along the way that I do all of my bathroom hygiene things in the exact same order every day and that I understood the logic as to why they were in the order they were in. And I was just like, this just happened. It didn't always do that. This is how I've evolved unconsciously. You know? um, there was another time when I was in an organization and I was in a leadership role that needed to be separated. We're growing. And so you're going to get a more specific role and have another leader alongside you that takes over responsibilities you previously co-owned. And I was able and capable to go kind of either route, if you think of it as a fork in the road. And the leadership team I worked with was strongly encouraging me to go an operations route versus a sales leadership route because they kept saying things like, you're so good at this. This is so, you know, you just have this buttoned up. And I was like, I appreciate that. And I love that you feel that way. But this is easy to me. This is just the way things should be. I want to be challenged. I want to do more. I want to do stuff that I think is hard. And they're like, this is plenty hard. We need the use. And I said, yeah, but not for me. You know, <laughs> I don't mean to diminish the work that goes into very complex operations and the things I still do. But in that moment, the stuff that made sense wasn't my fun next challenge. It was just the way things should work in my brain. Yeah. I think a lot of individuals see management kind of has like a um, 
you know, limited growth compared to leadership. And leadership is about vision creating and um, removing barriers and motivating individuals. And, and management's about that too. But more so, management is about driving consistency of operations and maintaining a process that we already know works. And then being able to monitor that process for any indications that maybe improvements needed and then interceding with the team and, and trying to understand what's causing that process to, to erode or why are the results different than expected. So I think in some light, management is undervalued because uh, people take for granted how hard it actually is to sustain change. They all want to celebrate the people who inspire change and lead us to the next place. Like, yeah, that's important. But so is once we get to that next place, who do we hand that over to, to keep us there, to relay the foundation and create a strong bedrock for where we're going to stay for the next few moments and so that we could take that next step forward? Because growth isn't like a straight line this huge trajectory where we just continually evolve. It's these small inner steps in which we improve, we get to the next level and we live there for a little bit. And then that gives us new insights and new learning and new understanding, new skills that allow us to take that next step to that next level. So if we're just simply leading and we're constantly pushing to go, 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 we're going to exhaust people because they're never going to be able to plateau and like reach a new status quo to catch back up, to get a breather, to equip themselves with new skills to take that next step. And, and I think management is the group that really allows the growth to happen in a logical step forward fashion. So I, in some ways, I, I feel like we got a soapbox and we got to stand up for management has an equally important skill to leadership. Yeah. I mean, you're right. Like, I like to remind everyone that I work with and myself in the work that I do that there is no neutral in business. But at the same time, I don't think that's necessarily in contrast to the idea that you can't have the ability to, you know, do change, stabilize, feel the impact, see results and revisit as opposed to constant movement for success. So sitting idly is never good. But the managers are a pillar of a system. And we know that you're as tall as your lowest pillar when it's a dependent system. And so whether it's the people that are on the strategic side, like where we started crafting it, or the people driving adherence to whatever has been decided, crafted, whether it's a test or a perfect system we're implementing and whatever the hierarchy is at your organization, everyone plays a role. And it doesn't matter what pillar you are. You don't want to be the lowest might not be the most glamorous, but that's in the eye of the beholder. It's like the managers and adhering to a process is so important. I can't count the number of organizations that I see, hear about, or work with where they have the knowledge of maybe the direction they should be headed in a, let's say, go-to-market strategy or any number of topics. And they have a lot of knowledge, usually about the industry, their field, their expertise, but they don't translate that. And so that's, you know, the strategy or any pillar independently falls down and nothing comes of it. And it's all the more sad because you have the hard part, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, have you seen the inverted triangle uh, for showing how organizations kind of serve in a servant fashion? 
So a lot of hierarchical or stovepipe organizations, you'll see, you know, the board and then the CEO, that person's C-suite, and then you've got your executive team, and then you got your management team. The and top then, down, the classic. Yeah, the top down. Well, the, there's models now in which that's inverted, in which at the top of the pyramid is the customer, and then the operators has, you know, like the key source of information and inspiration, uh, because that's really why a business exists is the transaction between those two people, the customer and the person who's serving them. And, you know, all those layers, yeah, they're maybe people will disagree with us. They're important for decision making and to, you know, be efficient in setting the direction and measuring progress and communicating important things. But really, if it doesn't all translate into that transaction, being different and creating value, like all that energy in creating your vision and your strategy and trying to engage people was not not worth the overhead. It, if you can't impact the exchange between your operator and the customer, you know, the things are going to fall apart really quick. Yeah. At the end of the day, it is not what you know. It is absolutely what you do. How well you do it. Can you do it repeatedly? And can you do it in a habitual way where you can focus on something else and get better in a new way, you know? Oh my gosh. I love, uh, we're going to have a really nerdy episode here. (laughs) That, what you just said is this standardization idea. We're going to get, we're going to go probably go much deeper on that. But a lot of people resist it because they're like, oh, it's stifling and you're limiting my ability to think and create. Well, actually, no, we're giving you a repeatable and reliable process so that you don't have to think when you do your those things. So you can do the other things that do require the thinking. Like we're trying to turn make it turnkey in some ways automated and error proof so that you have a routine that is predictable so that you're not always trying to endure chaos but we've given you stability so that you have the capacity now to think more strategically as an operator because you operator who touches the customer day in day out you're the most important part of the feedback loop and if if you're constantly inundated with bad process you're never really going to be present to interact with our customers to truly understand what their needs are and to bring forward the ideas we need to take the next steps and to become a better organization. So our operators, if we aren't giving them standards, we're setting them up for failure because they're constantly going to be changing and pivoting and they won't be on any stable ground and they'll never have the capacity to to think and relate and connect. So we have to give them repeatable processes so that some part of their day is stable so that they do have that room to connect. Yeah, and people are allergic to processes most of the time. And it's like some of them are, you know, not necessarily for them. And there are hold things together kind of process that needs to be there. It might not be fun. But most processes are made for the people that adhere to them in order to make things better for that exact same person. And yet that exact same person is the person that's gut reaction to hearing about a new process is like, oh, gosh, not today, not another thing. It's like. This is for you to help you. This is supposed to give you the framework to know I'm going to be doing things the right way that have most likely led to success in the past. And also now I can know 
if I adhere to these, I can be my own human and I can get it done my own way. Like probably not our focus point for today, but I think one of my superpowers is being able to help, especially salespeople become their own selves and humans again, while still doing their own job. But internally, when we think about process and improvement, you know, to our point at the beginning of people either kind of do it naturally, it vibes with them, it resonates, they get it, they're that person, or they're like, what's wrong with you? It's the what's wrong with you people that most are most allergic to processes being implemented or put on them. But really, like most of that is to give them just enough stability so the company feels good and they can have autonomy back. Yeah, huge, huge word, autonomy. Like we're, we're not taking away autonomy by automating. We're giving you a repeatable, reliable a process so that you have space in your day now to practice autonomy. Whereas individuals are like, everything is so scheduled and regimented. Yeah, that's because we want to have predictability in outcomes and in process to eliminate the guesswork for you and for our customers so that we can use that capacity, that extra energy and target it to the next change we want to make so that we get out ahead of this curve because we have to just accept that constant is a change is a constant. And if we're always reacting to it, we're never going to catch up. But if we can create stability and be able to meet the changes we face today, we'll have the room and space to think about the changes that are coming tomorrow. Yeah. And it's the, the processes, like the, an example of how they give autonomy. Cause you're right. It is a very, it, it sounds almost too good to be true. Like most people are like, yeah, I have a lot of processes in my life and I don't get to choose any aspect of them. So what are you talking about? Um, so with a salesperson, a really easy example would be you could give someone a script and they don't deviate or you give them a framework with best practices. And as long as they keep those as part of how, you know, what they actually say, they're using the best practices, they can still talk in the way that they speak naturally. Um, more specific example of how like getting autonomy while adhering to a process in a more um, like quantitative way would be take uh, gathering sales data throughout a sales process. Every salesperson or you know anyone that really uses a CRM or ERP or some major system and that they enter into as part of their daily practice in their work. Um, they're entering in that data. And a lot of times companies don't do a great job organizing what all needs to be gathered and what doesn't. And so a lot of my work is in identifying what needs to be gathered, why, you know, we, that's a whole nother topic of like gathering data to answer questions that we've asked and we know we want answered, but um, they get the data. And so if everyone adheres to the data and then you can use that to translate to learnings to either make it easier for them to sell show them their blind spots. Like maybe they're calling during certain times of day unknowingly and they're really missing their customer because they never call any other time. That might be a minute example that doesn't, you know, create a big change, but that's a blind spot that people wouldn't know, but their data they're adhering to by logging their notes is going to show it when you translate it and give it back to them. And that buys into adherence, you know, which we were talking about earlier and how significant it is. So most data goes nowhere and companies try to gather way too much of it, but not consistently. And then it's hard to, one, get buy-in, so already, but two, use it for anything, whether it's a business use, an individual autonomy kind of use, 
a million others go on that list. Holy smokes. Okay. You hit on a lot right there. So um, knowing your process is like a, a journey, right? Like you constantly are learning and improving and your processes are an asset. And the only way to treat them that way is to study them and get good data around those processes to be able to measure their performance. So a lot of organizations are data rich, but information poor. So they're measuring sometimes too much and they're not translating that data into action. And that's a big issue. So knowing what you're measuring and why you're measuring is really important for learning. And um, so I think you hit on data, but the other thing you hit on was the concept of waste, which is anything within your processes that you're doing that the customer wouldn't see value in. So for example, collecting excessive amounts of data or too much data, there's a cost to that. And that's in, in the forms of Lean Six Sigma, that's a form of waste oftentimes labeled as over-processing, which is you're doing more than necessary. So, and that's an expensive resources. And, you know, that takes time and energy and capacity away from doing something else. And your resources are are limited. And you want to, out of respect for people, maximize their them and, and how you use them. So if you're taking people and you're asking them to collect data that's never used or unnecessary, you're squandering that person's time. And and has an organization that's bad because, one, that's costly, but also it's frustrating. The operator knows what they're doing isn't important, but they're doing it anyways because they were told to, and things just get really messy and conflict arises because the, the process is wasteful and everyone knows it, but they're not willing to talk about that waste and, and try to redesign the process to more make it more efficient and more effective. So early on when we were talking about capacity, capacity is that discretionary ability to work and create value where it's not already occurring. And the only way you can do that is to minimize waste and to give people the flexibility to create and to innovate. But if, if everyone's just going around and doing a whole bunch of wasteful activities, they're never going to have the headspace or the time to evolve. Yeah. And I think the problem is that the various people in the world, the ones that tend to the improvement naturally or not, they're all trying to do the right thing. So maybe what would be helpful is an example of how all good intentions go bad very quickly and simply. And I'll keep using my sales example. One, it's my wheelhouse, but hopefully these are simple enough examples that everyone in any discipline can relate to them in their own way. So in sales, you've got people that manage, you know, what fields show in your CRM system, your any kind of system you're putting data in, there's a field and you put your data next to it. And so who puts those fields there? Who decides how many do we have? Which ones do I enter data into? Are any of them required? If so, when? And so on. You have your sales managers and leaders and people doing strategic decisions and guiding adherence. And then you have your team, the data entry people. And then you have other people in the business. So let's say a leadership meeting, someone in a leadership position asks a question and we think, oh, we might have data on that from our CRM. We go, look, we don't have data on that. There's no field. Ah, we send a request to our team, make this field for our salespeople to put this data in. So we'll have it. They make the field. 
this has happened before. So that's one of 70,000 fields for this one salesperson on any given call. <laughs> I might exaggerate a tad, but it's usually too many to be, you know, adhered to in any way and keep their productivity. So now, you know, the cyclical thing, if we want more data, let's create a field for it. We'll tell the team about the field. They have it. Have we fixed it? And it's like processes, data gathering in a specific, appropriate way. It does not just occur. So something I alluded to a minute ago is, unfortunately, I see these well-intentioned folks creating fields and trying to gather data and in the right vein. But they don't stop to ask first, what question are we answering? You know, creating a data gathering infrastructure starts with knowing what you want to find out. It is scientific method at the end of the day. What is your hypothesis trying to learn? And it doesn't have to be a fixed experiment in the way that science is, you know, sales and business evolves, but you reevaluate and that's the whole continuous aspect. But you go back to if what we want to learn is how effective is our sales process? Where do we have fall off? You know, normal business things about what goes right and wrong along the way. Then these would be the things we'd measure consistently to see that. And so whenever I work with, um, you know, revenue generating organizations and sales teams, um, loosely, you know, marketing, customer support, all of the process, we go to what are the data points that everyone enters every single time something happens consistently? And how long has that been going on? These are the things we have to learn from. Everything else is maybe spotty or absent. And are these things telling us what we need? And if not, or even if we have some data, like that's where everything starts. Yeah, I have a, a mentor who says that in a way that I think is pretty relatable is where are the thermometers in your process? You know, you're taking vital signs of your process day in and day out. As we interpret those vital signs, how are we using that information to you know, celebrate success because there's not enough of that that's done. So you're taking all this data and oftentimes people feel like the data collection is punitive. So I think in some ways we got to convert that from, hey, these thermometers allow us to measure how good we really are so that we can recognize and celebrate the momentum we have created and the good things we are doing because it's there and oftentimes we just don't know it. So through data collection, you should be doing both celebrating success and identifying your next opportunity for improvement. So I think what you were saying there, um, you know, my mentor, he he had a saying of we got to put the thermometers in the process. And a lot of people resist that because they're like, well, I'm being monitored or judged and maybe there's punitive consequences. Well, no, no, no. We want to be able to do it um, in a way that is honorable so that we can recognize the good work you're doing, but we can also identify the, the work that you're doing that maybe isn't maximizing use of your talent and skills so that it's on the table for us to discuss how would we do this differently. And it just creates a different type of culture than measuring for the sake of measuring. Right. And I think this gets back to the classic problem of companies forever struggling to work on their business because they're stuck working in their business. So, you know, you think about if you build a system that is specific, purposeful and adhered to for gathering data. I don't know many people in the way that we both raised our hand as improvement nerds that raise their hand and go, I just love entering data for the sake of it. You know, like there's good notes and people like that, but that's different than 
data entry in and of itself. And so because that's not fun <laughs> as a starting point, it has to be purposeful for people to want to do it. And so you have two options for adherence. You just tell people they have to do it with negative consequences, or you help them understand the value of doing it and have it as a standard, but people want to do it because they believe in the outcomes value as well. And so we've given some examples of that, but it, businesses will usually get, we'll say halfway loosely, like the, they won't bring it home because they might set up this infrastructure if we're lucky and it's good and they're getting it. And I work with small companies. So the people that would have to hit pause to take a step back to review the data they've gathered and then have a strategic discussion about what does it yield me? What do I then maybe do with it or not do, need to change or iterate in what I gather? And then how do I communicate that back to my team to make sure that even if I'm doing nothing at this time, they know that I'm looking at it. This is what I'm tracking. And this is my update on what I've seen. Like you have to always have the earliest of individual contributors aware of the best case scenario that will come back to them for the data entry they do many times a day, likely. And out of that, you are more reactive to and reliant on uh, data that is real time. I think, you know, committing to data and putting the thermometers in your process, you're, you're collecting what's called a KPI, a key process indicator. And those KPIs um, should be predictive of your outcomes. So you should, the more you do this, the better you're going to understand the relationship between your process metrics and your outcome metrics. But there's one additional metric that organizations oftentimes forget, which is your customer metric, which is the fastest moving, most reactive metric out of all of them. So your KPIs, they are oftentimes you heard has your, your leading indicators and your outcomes are your lagging. The customer are more of like your feeling indicators. And I think if we found a creative way to measure um, our customers' experience and our operators' experiences, I think those things day to day are really critical to know and understand because they're more predictive than even the KPIs are. And a lot of time and energy isn't spent there. So yeah, we have these scorecards and we have these dashboards to monitor the KPIs, but what are we doing on a day-to-day -day basis to talk to our customers and our operators around, did we deliver value? And, you know, really mature organizations kind of subscribe to this belief that you're going to feel the change before you see it. And day in and day out, they simply ask their operators, how do you know we won today? And if people over time start to feel like my job is easier, I'm giving better service, you know, and they just experience a little bit more joy in the processes that they're given to work within, I think that's telling. And I don't think I've seen any scorecard that tries to capture that to say, how did your day go today? And ask that question every single day. And if we collected that data and for like two weeks in a baseline period, days people's days were complete crap and they were exhausted and they were frustrated. And then we implemented change and suddenly their attitude and energy changes. And now they're saying today was better than yesterday. And that's true day in and day out going forward. We're enhancing their experience, and I think that is indicative that the process is going to improve because our operators are enjoying what they're doing more, and I, I'd love to see organizations get all the way down to that level. Yeah, I mean, you said so much 
important um, stuff there. So right away I made a note because you said KPI and I thought, yeah, I get that. Obviously I used it, but then you defined it slightly differently than me. And I was like, whoa, that's interesting. You said key process indicator. And I usually am intending to mean key performance indicator when I'm saying it. But then you followed that with exactly what I think the distinction is, is performance is usually an internal reflection and not something that considers the customer and the ultimate like value outcome for any business trying to sell to their end client, no matter the entity um, or person. But yeah, there's something to like a process might work on paper, but if people don't like adhering to it, it you know, then you have all these other negative outcomes about how it's really happening in real time, or maybe the long-term impact on other processes like talent retention, if they hate following the process of their job. And so at the end of the day, if your process is flawless, but you never keep people, then it's not flawless, you know, (laughs) like um, uh, there's probably an exception to that, but we won't dive into all of it. I think it's also, you made a great point about just considering the customer when you think about a business process right away. People look internally, but a process is a system and a value outcome is absolutely dependent on the customer. And so sometimes metrics really fool us into believing that we're doing all the right things. And unfortunately, we usually like create those systems ourselves, albeit unintentionally. But one of my favorite books, this is really nerdy, is um, The Goal by Eliyahu Goldred, which is a process manufacturing book for people that don't know. So the fact that a person whose life has been in sales is reading that is probably funny. But the whole point and the goal is this manufacturing plant has a ton of metrics that they religiously measure and are evaluated on. And they've got them all in the like appropriate ranges and they're about to be shut down. They're not making money. And the book is the narrative process of redefining the goal is making money and selling things and the customers wanting to buy more and continuing to do that. And that means all these metrics internally that we're going to, you know, they, they have to slowly figure them out and change them all. So they break all of the system internal company metrics, but they achieve the goal of selling things, making money, creating successful company. And so I think the, my love for creating processes is to enable company success And the risk in creating processes is that you also do your very best effort and you cut the feet out from under people by pointing our direction, our intention, you know, our measurements at things that might not ultimately lead us to success. So I think the more people view a process with a customer appropriately in mind for whatever the context is, the better and more well-rounded they would be brilliantly said and that book has been reckoned i know of the book because Goldrat is considered one of the lean six sigma gurus so yeah i was quizzed on who he was and you know theory of constraints and, and bottlenecks and um I, it's on my list i've heard so many great things about the book and thank you for championing it i i think Really, if you step away from that, what what Goldratt was talking about is systems thinking. And in systems thinking, the ultimate goal is to avoid unintended consequences or what's called sub-optimization. So it's not looking at your processes as individual activities, but interconnected activities that all, when working together in a system, in a systematic way, deliver value consistently. So it's on my list. I'm Thankful you brought it up. Since you brought it up, I'm trying to convince my wife of something. So I have it on my website, something called the Nerd Shop. 
And on the nerd shop, I have like a couple of quotes from Lean Six Sigma gurus. And I really want her to make a shirt that says drum buffer rope. And I think anyone who's a gold rat nerd would like fall over themselves to get it because that's how organizations, uh, you know, should be planning their cadences. You know, what's my bottleneck? Because that element is the a hinge pinch. I can only go as fast as my bottlenecks are going to allow me. So I want to make that shirt and I'm just putting it out there that if I do, you know, I'll, I'll ping you and say like, here's your nerd shirt. I finally made it. I finally convinced Carolyn, my wife to, to produce it. She thinks I'm crazy, but I'm like, there's people out there who love this stuff. And like, you're one of those people. Yeah, no, I think that wouldn't be crazy. And making a t-shirt, I have full belief in you. I think there will be, Stranger friends on the streets that will come up to you and be so excited, yeah. you know, and then you'll find improvement nerds in other new ways with your shirt. It's really lead generation for you. Yeah, that's a great way to look at it. I see it more as wearing my nerd on my sleeve and telling people they should. Do <laughs> so, oh, thank you for allowing us to kind of just nerd out on, on gold rat and this idea of theory of constraints. I think, I don't know when we create your episode, I'm really going to struggle like to what to call it because you hit on so many things. Like we just talked about systems thinking. And when I initially met you and was learning what you were doing, I wanted to use the, the, the term value stream management to describe the work that you were doing. And I, it really doesn't matter what term you use to talk about how you help organizations get better. What you're trying to inspire is you need to be a process honoring culture in order to know what you're doing and why you're doing it and how to do them better. Yeah, I think maybe, and I, I, I don't know what my episode should be called. Certainly you'll decide the best one, but it's like process. I'm a process nerd, but you should be too. And you can be a very much more mild flavor of nerd, but liking or being open to at least processes when they're done right and effectively will enable your success. And it is not just for those who are naturally inclined, it is for all those who are willing to do it well. And I think, you know, some of the examples we painted today is how processes can be the best enablers and the best informers and make us the most lean, efficient companies and like feedback loops of ourselves and our customers. But it's, it's all in the doing. And so whenever someone's making a process, it is a system and you will have elements of the system, whether you're too hierarchically high and you see everything and you can't get in the details or you're in the opposite way, or you're in one segment, you have to be sure that you get opinions of the areas you don't know, because if you build it, you know, so many of what you experience as a consumer is a company's clunky systems that you can see from the outside is like, they made that decision in a vacuum and that's coming across way worse than I know they intended. I have funny examples in my brain, but the point is the same as you don't know everything. No one does, no matter how big or small your company. And so build a system and think about the what ifs and think about all the alternates because your first idea might be the best, but if you don't have alternates, you'll never know. And then get other people who know different parts of it. Even if they end up saying, this is fine, you don't need me. And that way you'll make sure you maintain the system while you work on even your area of it. Beautifully said. And on my website, I 
talk about process and that bad process will beat a good person every day. And through this, as I invite improvement nerds on here and, and encourage them to share their story and their expertise and how they're making a difference, you know, I hope that we're uh, distilling that and we're getting it out there and people are saying, oh my gosh, the, the processes I follow day in and day out, they're not setting me up for success. In fact, these processes are working against me instead of for me because a, a process is improvable. And, you know, I think a lot of of the improvement sciences, Lean Six Sigma and whatnot has a negative connotation because a lot of people perceive it's about judgment of an individual's performance. And that's not true. You know, these individuals, they're simply following the process we gave them. Um, and I think what you'd said is a lot of times these processes like were created in a vacuum or like designed and they were done within uh, limited information and maybe there was a bunch of assumptions that people were acting on when they created these processes and then we just without testing them we rolled them out right so sometimes these processes occur organically and sometimes the processes occur through formal design and then we launch them and then like we just wipe our hands of them like there they are there's your new process instead of implementing it through PDCA which is enlightened trial and error so here's our plan. Let's deploy it and do this. And then let's check for the outcomes at all at all levels. So first is, can our operators do this? Uh, is this process something they can even follow? And when they follow it, is this something they actually enjoy doing or do they understand or do they have questions? So that's kind of like PDCA cycle one is, can we even follow this process? And then PDCA cycle two is, okay, yes, we can follow that process now. Is it moving these leading indicators the way that we think it ought to? Great. That's the next like litmus test, like this thing's working. And then we can step further back and watch it, watch it even closer to say, okay, yeah, now those metrics are moving. Is it giving us the outcomes that we want? So a lot of times people, when they deploy a process, First, they don't design it. If they do design it, like you said, they do it in a bubble and they're not doing it in a customer-centric way or an operator-centric way. And as it's launched, they don't ever iterate on it. They don't measure it. They don't learn from it. And they don't try to continually improve it. And that is a slippery slope. And I I think, you know, what you were saying is we got we to gotta stop that bad habit. We got to create a culture where processes are honored and we celebrate the people who helped create them to get us where we are now. But we also have to accept that maybe those processes aren't going to get us any further than, than we are today. And if we want change and we want to go to new places, we're going to have to try new things. Yeah. I mean, and that's certainly true that that last sentence, especially goes back to the no neutral in business. You know, you have to feel like you're pushing forward even at least a little bit, or you're sliding backwards and you just think it's neutral because it feels nice because you're not pushing forward. But I have a question for you that you got me thinking about if I can turn the tables. Um, I'm sure we both have had a million conversations in our lives where we're working with or talking to a business owner that might agree with these all, you know, like kind of scientific method approaches to testing process, you know, can we do it? Can, and then the phases. Like they might think that's right. That's certainly the best practice. But 
I don't have time to do all that. And, you know, I've, you know, in some, there are larger companies that dedicate many more resources to this, at least sometimes. And then the smaller the company, the more I think justified people feel in their, I don't have time to be that diligent about my methodology, like methodological approach um, and seeing if it fares and then, you know, slow iteration. Cause I have results that are due here. I've got an investor call here. I've got this, I've got that. And they often, I think, lean to their background of look at all these companies that have been built with these rapid things that aren't tested in the way you're saying. And so like, I know how I approach that, but I'm curious how you try to navigate when you get stuck starting there in the no time near term. <laughs> yeah. You- I'm glad you brought this back up because it was a thought I had earlier um, and something you were saying that oftentimes individuals will come forward and say, yeah, that's all great. And I want to get on board with that, but I'm simply too busy. And I think there's like a a Lego image, if you Google it, um, about process change. And it's like two Lego people pushing a cart with square wheels on it. And there's a uh, another Lego who enters the scene and he, that individual's got a round wheel and is like, can we try this? And, you know, the other Lego people say, no, 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 simply too busy to try anything new. And I get it. Like your organization is uh, got expectations to continue to operate and function day in and day out to meet the demands of your customers. So in some ways you're building the plane in the air. Um, I think, I've heard that before. I hear it a lot in in this world is, you know, you got to improve while you're operating and you got to just accept that um, there's gains there, that maybe what you're doing today isn't the best way and you're squandering resources and you don't even know it because waste likes to hide. And if you stopped and took time out of your day to actually think about what you were doing day in and day out, you would come about efficiencies and improvements that would give you less of this sense of busyness and more of um, this sense of accomplishment that, hey, like we're working smarter now instead of working harder. And I think a lot of organizations want, want to just keep forging ahead and work harder and I think that's risky. Yeah, like you can make progress, but I don't think it's sustainable because when you're simply working harder all the time, you're relying on heroics of your individual operator. And that is somewhat of like a, a, a toxic culture because now if every operator is trying to be a hero, they're competing with each other and that can cause toxicity. Um, but also it's exhausting, right? To always be being the hero, you as an individual, like eventually you're going to fatigue and you're going to burn out. And when that burnout happens, the organization starts to become at risk because there's no successor, right? Like that person and their heroics and their abilities or whatever intuitive solutions they were bringing to the problems in a reactionary state go with that individual when they go. And that's that's a real risk for organizations at any phase is if you're dependent on your operator to ha- to have this instinctual response when things go wrong and just rely on that person to figure it out, like that is 
a problem because what happens when that person is afforded another opportunity or is given uh, a, a promotion and they leave that role, even if they don't leave your organization, but if they leave that role of what they were doing, all that stuff that they were doing goes with them. And if you want this stuff to endure, if if you want to, out of respect for that person, if you want them to be able to leave a, the process better than they found it, you have to give them the time to actually document what they were doing and why they were doing so it's, that it's transferable. And if organizations just go around working hard, 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 I think it's terribly disrespectful to the people who are being asked to work that hard. And the way we can celebrate their hard work is to find a way to capture it and transfer it to the next person so that they leave some form of legacy in their place. And Simon Sinek, in his book, The Infinite Game, he says that it's the difference between playing a finite game and an infinite game, in which the purpose of an infinite game is to perpetuate it so that it continues versus going from point A to point B with a certain goal in mind and then achieving that goal and then it's all done. That That's not the goal of business. They're not trying to go from point A to B. They're trying to go to B to C to C to D all the way to double A through infinity. Like the, the going concern of business is that they're always evolving. They're always creating value and they're always delivering to customers who truly need their services. And if organizations don't subscribe to that belief, eventually it's going to catch up to them. Like, yeah, enjoy the growth while you got it, but know that you're simply celebrating long-term success at the cost of, or you're celebrating short-term success at the cost of long-term relativity. They're kicking the can. Yeah. I mean, there's no hack to it. And you brought up so many good examples, but I think the word that stood out the most was that if you try to shortcut it or hack it, could you make it? Certainly possible. Many companies have. What's the you know potential is like you take on a huge risk. You know, so many good companies, like I work a lot with early stage, smaller, medium companies, early stage companies, many, many, many fail for the wrong reasons. Tons fail, but a lot of them fail for the wrong reasons. And a lot of it is this belief they have to hack something or go faster for these immediate results at the sacrifice of having runway time or ultimate success and achievement. A very, very cut and dried example from my practice today is companies want the revenues to improve. I fix revenue problems. I create scalable revenues. But a lot of times they want results. I'm a sales professional. They go, we put some commission or something in our structure you could sell for us. And I have to, among others, hard no that idea because that is nothing that will exist when I'm gone. And that would be the worst way for you to spend your money in this vein. You know, like there's no infrastructure. There's no transferability. Um, I think that, you know, as we talk, there's, do we have time for an example? I find this example to be so poignant. We have as much time as we need to inspire people to subscribe to whatever it is we're talking about. Like podcast for one, but yeah. (laughs) To call this podcast episode, like, but the, I think the examples you're providing um, are very dynamic and is super useful. So let's lay it on them and be unapologetic. Like I'm not apologizing for getting on the soapbox and saying like things can be better. And the more we pretend that everything's perfect right now, the further we get from our our true capacity to um, really reach for the stars. Like we, if you're fine being complacent, like this podcast is not for you. I'm sorry. Like 
<laughs> I don't, I don't, I'm, it's called improvement nerds, not complacent nerds. So the- <laughs> <laughs> if they're still listening, I would be fascinated. Like truly, like I'd want to understand. But um, so here's my example, and I think it's poignant. So one permission to be wrong, and I'm so open if I'm way off base on this for anyone to tell me otherwise. I always like to reserve the permission to be, you know, wrong today, learn more later today, tomorrow. Um, this is a company. I'll, I'll name them because I'm just being transparent. Everyone can see this stuff. I'm going to talk about Domino's. Um, who I like and order pizza from. And so Domino's has their online pizza tracker uh, system, like many online ordering food places do. And you just know Domino's is a big enough name brand company that they have lots and lots of resources. So when we think about company size and maturity and what that allows them to do, we have no doubt that Domino's has a lot of, you know, choice. (laughs) Um, So in, in discovering this thing, I'm going to give you the example of, I went and studied a bunch of other, food service delivery, like process flows, because they get the tracker and sometimes there's a map, but there's usually steps, you know, we've confirmed your order and so on. So I don't know if anyone else noticed when this started happening, but Domino's has a unique, or yeah, Domino's has a unique step in theirs, which is quality check. Quality check appeared someday in the past. I ordered pizza before and after it showed up, I think. And so it goes right after it comes out of the oven and before it is in the vehicle for delivery. So you've got the normal steps. So like with other delivery services, it goes from cooking in some capacity, you know, preparing whatever word they use to out for delivery on in route on the way, which means that we all know cooking at a restaurant happens. It gets boxed and it isn't immediately whisked to your home. There's some like waiting period there before it's picked up and it moves, but the trackers never show this waiting period. So you as the consumer at home, hungry, waiting for food, never know how long your food is sitting under a you know hot lamp, just cooking, like getting worse. Domino's at some point along the way, this gets back to like the business, the internal view, something got a conversation going around wanting to tell the customers, like we've checked our pizza for its quality. We've certified that this is, you know, probably the right toppings, the right stuff for you. They've had campaigns about making sure they make things right when they get subtle things wrong with your pizza. And many people have seen the varieties they've done. So I imagine that some kind of this happened at Domino's where they're, someone's tasked with figuring out how we communicate this regularly and efficiently to the customers. So they know we care about quality. And somewhere along the way and working in a bunch of silos and like small teams that were tasked with this, they decided to put quality check comes out of the oven and someone's going to look at it and make sure it's right before it starts heading to you. Flash forward. Here's how this comes out in real time. You're sitting at home, you're watching your pizza be you know, confirmed. And then you can see that, and they put the names in there, which is personal. And I'm sure there was a lot of thought around that. It's like, John is, you know, like putting your pizza in the oven at this time. And they have little time checks, probably to keep you informed on the quality of how things are going. And so what's great about my Domino's orders personally is that they get going right away. Usually my pizza gets in the oven with quickness. The problem is that I can see when it is out of the oven in which it is immediately quality checked. And I spend the majority of my time staring at my Domino's tracker in quality check mode, which means I know that it's been in quality check mode for 20 minutes. And even though it's still on time for delivery, I know it's just sitting there. And so I've started having this like weird conversation with a bunch of other people who also are not pleased with how long their pizza sits in the quality check thing. So I'm sure the last thing Domino's ever intended 
was for a bunch of angry customers to be sitting at home going, why is it just sitting there? It's been done out of the oven. John took it out of the oven and quality checked it at this exact time. And it's not even on its way to my house. And so it's like all the resources, the right intention, a message worth delivering. And yet here we are. Beautiful example that's transferable to any organization within the food services. So you've got these high level process steps, which Domino's highlights is you've got the process to order the food. So that is the customer communicating to the preparer what they want. So then you've got the order entry and then you've got to make it. So there's the raw ingredients and you're making your pizza and then you got to bake it. You got to deliver it and then you close the the process out with paying for it, right? So there's this high level process map and there's a, a lot of activities that are happening within it. I find it really interesting that they call out quality as a certain step because um, if you if you are a zealot and I, I'm like, I don't know where I fit on the scale of like the improvement nerd spectrum. I'm not like everything by the book, but there are some things in the books like you should not dispute, which is Duran's quality trilogy. And Duran is pretty well known for saying that quality is designed into your process, not inspected in at the end. So every single process step along the way, your operator should have had the skills and the ability to detect whether or not the product they were producing at that step was of quality. And be able to, so Toyota is pretty well known for the Andon cord, not pass that bad quality on to the next step. So if the quality is bad at the end of baking the pizza, you have scrap and waste now. It's irrecoverable, right? You've got a nerdiest response that I just love. Like, <laughs> oh, feeling it. I'm feeling the nerd juices today. Where, where has... I love that you like. You're upset that, like, you're so right. Quality doesn't happen in a single instance. It is either there or not there. And if it's not maintained, then it's not quality. And it's like, maybe there was a point, you know, what, what's funny is when I had this light bulb moment and realized how much I hated this was obviously a very late pizza, but I was with a friend. And I said, why do they do this? Like, they don't have to show us this. Why do they do this? And she goes, well, like, don't ev- doesn't everywhere do it. And there were my competitive analysis launching point. but. You're upset or, you know, loosely that it's not the right interpretation of quality. That's not how quality would be measured, which is why I jokingly said it's the nerdiest answer to this example. Most people are like, it was just funny to hear her gut reaction as consumer. My friend was, isn't that what everyone does? Don't they just want to tell us that? It's like, they don't think like, you know, you and I do. And so they're just like, well, they're just trying to communicate it. And I'm like, there has to be a better way to get the Domino's audience to know we do quality stuff here, whether we used to, we do now, we care about it now, it's our focus now, other than we are gonna stare at your pizza for its quality 20 minutes before we let it start its journey to you. <laughs> yeah, oh, I love this example. I hope, has people listened to this? Like, I hope um, we're pushing some buttons because this is, this is the reality of of how they consume yeah they expect quality but nowadays quality is assumed uh almost every customer has it as an expectation and so it's assumed so obviously every organization does it 
And it's not like a certain step, but it is it permeates every step of the process. And if people are listening to this and their role is quality inspection, they're probably pretty peeved at what you and I are saying right now. I'm not not saying their their roles aren't important. I'm saying how they perform their roles could be really different. Is that they should be doing back to Duran quality planning, quality assurance, and quality testing. And a lot of times all they do is quality testing, right? They wait until the process has been completed and they test on the backside. Yes, that's important, but that's not the only piece of quality. You should be doing quality planning, which is you design quality into your process. Quality assurance is you monitor that people are following that process. And if those two things are true, if you're process was designed with quality in mind and the customer's expectations at the forefront of it, and then you monitor that people are following that process, then you should have good quality products on the end. But a lot of times they're not completing that full gamut. They're simply inspecting at the end and we need them to to rise and work within their organizations to serve the entire spectrum of the process, not just the end point of it. Right. And I think this example, I'm going to say potentially points to because everything I said about it is me at home on the couch as a consumer inferring and making all this up. Like it might, again, be all wrong, but you know what I know now. So, um, but I think the example speaks to if I'm anywhere close to right, how, you know, I'm not trying to like shit on the quality people of the world. I've worked in quality and regulatory in my past, like specifically a little bit, but the point is the same. It's certainly not about them in a negative way or anyone's intentions, which we know aren't negative, especially at the onset. It's more about how it falls down and no one is aware enough of how it's broken to catch it before it manifests. So again, all the resources or plenty of resources, lots of smart people, lots of good intentions, lots of, you know, working together like that. But I'm willing to bet the people we'll say in the room deciding of this quality check as part of the process and how it would manifest from a consumer perspective, like the consumer experience audience was not in that decision-making process or they did not do a test with a customer audience in a capacity where I know that it's okay that my pizza sits there. I know that happens. It's happened since I've ordered pizza since the dawn of time. It is not going to change my interest in ordering Domino's pizza. And that's not just a safe face with Domino's. So I appear to be like tearing down. It's not my intention. I like it. I have a free pizza waiting with my rewards. The point is, all of that seems to be going so well. Resources, intentions. And yet, the small subtlety of like earlier, maybe the wrong person or the right person wasn't included. We didn't think, what are we not thinking about? Who else do we need to double check from? Even if it feels like we've got all the executives here and we've aligned on a decision. I think this story, I'm so glad you brought it up because it's a great summary to almost everything we've talked about is it isn't about the individuals. It's about the collective and how they work together is not like um, just accept and not embrace conflict to uh, talk about what what might break or what might not work. I think a lot of times are maybe they know like there's this issue like, oh, my gosh, like I can't believe we're rolling this out. Someone might have known in this creating process that that's not going to work. 
but they didn't raise their hand or communicate it because they were fearful of negative consequences or punitiveness. So maybe they were trying to advocate for the customer, but couldn't because the culture wasn't there. And I think that plays out a lot within organizations is they roll out bad processes and someone knows it's not going to work, but can't communicate it. And that's, that's quite um, troubling because this could have been avoided. And even if, if it wasn't communicated and now you're doing it and customers are saying they don't agree with it, that's the last, that's the next piece of feedback loop to say, Oh my gosh, this isn't getting us where we thought it was time to pivot and learn and grow and go somewhere else. And I think if anything, you're, you had said it well, that business is continually evolving and processes are continually evolving. It's those processes that if they're not designed appropriately, so what? Learn from them and take that next step forward. Like we don't have a crystal ball and sure we could do the things to try to listen to our front line and to have a culture of safety where people can speak up and even doing all those things. We're limited in our own creativity yeah, we can expand that a little bit by looking at our organizations from the outside in. That's definitely good advice. I'd heard you say a lot of people look at their businesses from the inside out and they design things in a bubble. So even if they were looking at their businesses from the outside in, there's still that risk of getting it wrong. And I think that a lot of people hear the word failure and they're like, no, avoid it at all costs. No, that is without failure, there's not change. Like, fail forward. Fail forward. So I I am glad you brought up Domino's. You've made me hungry, um, which is a constant state for me. Uh, <laughs> and you've just brought to us a really powerful episode. When you and I were doing this planning and stuff, I was so excited because a lot of the conversations I've had are um, about philosophy or theory uh, and, and some of them are talking about the tactical things, but I think yours was really like down and dirty. Here's all about process, processes, tactics, and here's why we got to focus on how our processes work for us to make sure that they're not working against us. So I, I'm just thankful that you and I've had this opportunity to create this episode. I think it's a really strong episode and I can't wait to get feedback from our listeners on to what, what they thought about it. Yeah. I would love all the feedback. I'm an open ear. So if anyone listens and wants to connect with me, you can easily find me on LinkedIn. Um, you can email me Jeanette at smartscaleconsulting.com. I'm pretty easy to find. There aren't a lot of Jeanettes out there to weed through, especially in Indiana, let alone the world. Yeah. And I think one of the things, as I bring this to a close, the one thing that struck me most in this episode was that you were very vulnerable and you would admit like, here's my view of the world and I'm going to share it openly. And just because I'm putting it out in the universe doesn't mean that I'm not willing to change it. And I think that is awesome role modeling is like we are individual geniuses right and our experiences have got us to where we are and it's how we experience the world and we owe it to everyone else to share our experiences and put it out there in a way that invites them to share their experiences too so that the the two of the the two experiences to can come together and complement each other they're not meant to compete with each other like 
obviously in your demeanor, you're not trying to rise to the top. You're trying to elevate everyone all together. And I just want to celebrate that in you. I think it's super cool. You're super authentic. And I encourage everyone who's listening to this episode to to seek you out, to partner with you because you're doing some really cool stuff. Thank you. I'm so flattered. I love that that comes across. It's something I care deeply about and love when I see it in you as I do and others around. So I appreciate it. I've so enjoyed our conversation. Same here. 